This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. This is a very special broadcast we're doing today as part of RRR's April Amnesty Celebration, of which there are only a few hours or a day to go, depending on how you count it. In the studio with us today, though, in our performance space is a live audience, which we don't normally have. I'm very pleased to know that we have an audience, something that uh, radio presenters don't normally get to see. And, of course, we have a very special guest today. Professor Ashley Bush is the director of the Melbourne Dementia Research Centre, which is a partnership between the University of Melbourne and the Florey Institute. And today we'll be talking about Alzheimer's research for the full hour of the program. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land that we are sitting in here today, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are present or listening to the program. And I know some people are listening live. A big hello. Thank you for listening in. Also to those who are listening time delayed via our podcast, thank you also for listening to the program and giving us your time. Ashley, welcome to the performance space of 3RRR. Oh, thank you, Shane. Um, thank you so much for inviting me today. Look, it's, it's great to have you on the show. We've worked a little bit together over the last year with regards to your new centre. But I want to start with a bit of your backstory because you're a neuroscientist because you failed as a comedian, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've used that line. Yep. yep. So, so what happened? <laughs> what, the, the comedian, it sounds like a better gig. Um, it doesn't pay as well, which yeah. is saying something, because science is not exactly a lucrative <laughs> profession either. But uh, yeah, I uh, started off uh, as a medical student as the, at the University of Melbourne and had to work my way through college, as they say. And uh, I, I found that the fastest way to make money in the smallest period of time was doing stand-up comedy and singing for a living. So, singing? Yeah, so I used to go around the traps in Melbourne doing funny songs like uh, Tom Lehrer type imitations and uh, right. yeah I, it was a good way of earning money fast yeah but it didn't work, didn't you didn't hit the big stage uh, no eventually I graduated of all things oh, right. and uh, became a, a physician uh, at a young age and decided to earn money the orthodox way yeah no sounds good now we're here to talk about um, Alzheimer's specifically but I want to start off somewhere where I suspect a lot of the listeners today are in the same space that I'm in and that is that there are so many diseases of the brain that we know about now. Um, we get, I get a bit confused about which ones, which and what symptoms are for which disease and how they affect us. So can you give us an idea of what Alzheimer's is in that regard and how it does differentiate from other you know, cognitive diseases that we get both in old age and before that? Yeah, well, well, actually, when I did my medical training, which is uh, about three decades ago, uh, there was this debate as to whether or not people lose their mind as they get older, whether senility was in fact a normal consequence of getting older, or was it a disease? And actually in the mid-80s, much of that changed when the, the main uh, material that accumulates within the brain in Alzheimer's disease was actually siphoned out of post-mortem tissue, dead people's tissue, uh, by people like Colin Masters, for example, and, and George Glenner in the United States. They were the pioneers to, of doing this, and they found this insoluble material which is collecting in the brain called amyloid. And they, they determined what the chemical um, nature is of that, that it was a, a small protein, a peptide. 
And uh, that ushered in a revolution as far as the regard of this disease in medicine. It uh, was now understood to be a disease with a pathology rather than a normal consequence of aging. And right. this is by far the most um, uh, common form of the causes of dementia. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form. But there are other forms of dementia, as we've understood. And over the, l the last 25 years, uh, neuroscience has become very sophisticated in being able to catalogue the other causes of dementia so that we have an array of diseases that can cause dementia. But Alzheimer's disease represents about 75% of cases. Mm -hmm. Now, these are all brought on with age as being the major risk factor. So whatever is causing these diseases, they, are, they have different pathologies, they have different natural histories, but age is what they have in common, that these are diseases that com come on usually after the age of 60, although you can be very unlucky with Alzheimer's disease and inherit mutations that cause it far earlier. So it can come on in the 40s and the earliest uh, noted cases, 18 years old. Really? Yeah. So, so what, I mean, what does that look like in terms of the, for, forgetting the age for a moment, what, what does Alzheimer's look like in terms of the symptoms versus some of the other diseases? I know when you get to the point of dementia, I suspect many of them look the same, but as you progress towards that point, how, how are they differentiated? Well, to work backwards, dementia means loss of the computer functions of the brain. So memory, reasoning, calculation. Mm -hmm. The earliest symptoms of Alzheimer's disease specifically is loss of memory function and even more particularly the inability to, to learn. So there's a slowing down of the ability to learn. This is the very, very earliest symptom. Uh, but usually what people complain of is that their short-term memory is failing and this gets worse and worse. And for quite some time, um, you can reassure a person that, well, this is normal and everyone uh, loses their memory a bit. But the, th the truth of the matter is that as we get better at measuring this, we know that Alzheimer's disease doesn't appear overnight, that there is this gradual deterioration of short-term memory and then the loss of performance creeps into other domains of performance, such as calculation and reasoning. But a person doesn't really present to a doctor until they've got um, a, a symptom which is causing a practical problem. And in the case of short-term memory, you can live with quite a bit of short-term memory loss without being Im impaired enough to bring yourself to anyone's attention. But there reaches a point where it becomes uh, a more serious issue. And... Uh, Perhaps the most er the earliest clinical symptom of Alzheimer's disease is a person who says, look, my short-term memory is far worse than it should be, and it's really causing me inconvenience, and I'm forgetting things that I really shouldn't forget. And that is sometimes how Alzheimer's disease presents to a clinician. Yeah. How, how, does, how does that appear, though? I mean, I, I know, you know, all the listeners, I'm sure, know that I'm only 32 years old, um, but my memory is that of a 46-year-old man these days. And th this is something... I know that my memory and my capabilities and my calculation speed have dramatically dropped off since, you know, I was this amazing physicist in my early 20s, right? Um, I can't do that stuff anymore. H how do you distinguish that, that normal change, from the, the sorts of onset you're talking about with Alzheimer's? 
That's a really good question. Now, that's the problem with being a physicist. Do you want, do you want to stop the show now? <laughs> we, can just, we can just stop now. Yeah. Well, you, you, you see, I guess it's like what you're describing is what happens when an athlete stops playing their sport. Well, right. of course, their, their performance is going to deteriorate as their system forgets it. So I'm not sure if that would be a cause for you to be concerned about. So my having la laziness has crept in well, and I, I don't remember stuff anymore. But, but, but you do, you, your speed goes down, right? I mean, your, your memory capability does seem to go down as you grow older. Yes, but really not until you're heading past your 60s. Okay. Uh, it, the brain is amazing at being able to maintain its levels of performance throughout life. And it's really only in late life that these features of loss of performance speed appear. So your ability to calculate the speed of your calculation, it can be measured on average in terms of populations to, to be maintained until well into the 60s and possibly all, it's potentially the brain is capable of maintaining its performance if you were a physicist, let's say, and stayed as a physicist throughout your life, the, your performance towards the end of your life, in theory, could remain the same if we can keep you free of neurodegenerative disease. Mm. Now, you mentioned uh, memory loss as one of the declines, but what, what other things are declining as you move into this state? Well, in terms of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, the, the mystery is that it's the parts of the brain that are really the most advanced in terms of computer function. So memory, calculation, reasoning, judgment, but things like movement and sensation are preserved. Okay. So those, and, and there are disorders of movement, such as Parkinson's disease, which are very specific for movement, but then can creep into cognitive loss. But Alzheimer's disease, for example, generally spares motor movement problems. Mm. And long-term memory? Long-term memory remains intact, uh, and only towards the most advanced parts of the disease does long-term memory begin to erode. But uh, a lot of people will, who have got Alzheimer's disease will say, I can remember what happened to me 20 years ago. I can't remember what happened yesterday. Yeah. So often when we see Alzheimer's portrayed in films and television and so forth, there, there is this image of the person not, not knowing who they are, not knowing who their relatives are, and having these spurts of clarity from the past. I mean, is this an accurate image of, of what it's like to have the advanced stages of the disease? In the advanced stages, yes. It can be quite tragic. A person can be alive, but, but their brain is technically no longer got information about themselves or their family in it. And that would be a very advanced stage. But Alzheimer's disease doesn't kill you. You can live without those parts of the brain. You can eat. You can move. All the basic functions are still there. So you die of something else. Yeah. So you essentially lose, completely lose your sense of self. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. yeah. Now, the, the standard, we're going to get to your view of Alzheimer's and, and so forth in the second part of the show, but I want to first explore what the sort of standard view of Alzheimer's is. And you mentioned the amyloid work that's been done, and this has been accepted for, for decades as the, the, the core reasoning behind Alzheimer's. Can you talk us through what is thought to be happening there with regards to the build-up of these amyloid uh, materials? Mm. Well... Alzheimer's disease was named after the guy who in 1906 published a paper where he took uh, pieces of brain of a woman who died with a dementia, an aggressive dementia in her 40s and had a look down the microscope and described with staining techniques of the time a, uh, these abnormal collections within the microscopic tissue. And they were the amyloid plaques and the neurofibrillary tangles. Now, these are the two uh, classic hallmark pathologies of Alzheimer's disease seen down a microscope. 
And they're very vivid when you see them down the microscope. So if a person dies with Alzheimer's disease and you take a, a look at, a, a, at their brain down a microscope, you see these all the time and it's quite striking. And so it's naturally, once Alzheimer's disease had been um, studied more seriously after the mid-80s when I mentioned that Colin Masters and others had purified the amyloid and had a, had a look at its chemistry, naturally the thought was, well, this probably is the cause of the disease because it's so conspicuous. Uh, but it, it, in the 30 years since the purification of amyloid, the, the main approach to trying to cure or prevent or stop Alzheimer's disease has been with therapies that obliterate this pathology. And obviously the work started off in animals first. It was proven that it was possible and you can do this by either preventing the production of the peptide that forms amyloid with uh, chemical inhibitors of the enzymes that are involved, or you can clear it out with antibodies. You can actually use uh, antibodies to suck out the amyloid from the brain into the blood and get rid of it. And these approaches have been the represent probably 95% of the research effort in terms of trying to come up with a cure for Alzheimer's disease. And it's been 30 years of very solid effort testing out these approaches to see whether or not they can be of any clinical benefit. And the good news is that it works. You can get rid of the amyloid. The bad news is it doesn't stop the disease, mm. at least so far. Now, there are still those who hold on to quite a lot of hope that maybe treating earlier when the amyloid first appears could show benefit. But once you have Alzheimer's disease, I think everyone now accepts it's too late to get rid of the amyloid, which seems to be the first of those lesions to appear, the tangles Mm. Uh, come second. So it has been very frustrating. It's been estimated that billions of dollars, upwards of five billion dollars, has been spent on gigantic clinical trials where Australia has played quite a prominent role to show that you can get rid of the amyloid. But unfortunately, this has not rescued the dementia. Now, this must play into the role that pharmaceutical companies want in this space. I mean, if, if they've, you know, a lot of this money, I assume, is investment from pharma companies, if they are not seeing a clinical, clinically viable you know, application of that that they can sell, what, what does that mean for future investments into, into Alzheimer's research? Yeah, this is a, an important problem because big pharma uh, play a major role in, in what eventually becomes a prescription. I mean, it, it's, very, it's very uncommon for new drugs to be developed without big pharma being involved in a major way. And they have become pessimistic about this. And some of the big farmers have pulled out of Alzheimer's research altogether. I think what a lot of normal people don't realize is that Big Pharma actually do not do much in the way of pioneering research. What they do is they will um, take an approach that already works when, once it's less risky and then run with that. But the risk-taking research, the uh, illuminating uh, type of research that we hope is going to eventually come to a cure for Alzheimer's disease doesn't actually come from Big Pharma. It comes from small biotechs and academics. And it's, it's those groups that struggle for the funding and the oxygen necessary to take the risks. Now, Alzheimer's disease was thought to be amyloid was the cause and that's a safe bet. And since that safe bet and, you know, most people's opinion was that that was the cause, since that seems to be not so straightforward, now Big Pharma are getting more reluctant to get involved. And so the, the big trials involved have now 
turned down quite a bit. And we're back to looking at pioneering research and basically shuffling the deck of cards again and try to pull out something else. There can't be a huge number of examples similar to that that Big Pharma have had to deal with. I mean, it seems as though, you know, I I realise that the investment in other drugs is often huge and, and so forth, but most of them do lead to therapeutic... Um, therapeutically applicable outcomes for them. This this has been such a massive area for such a long time, and to get in, is is there no sort of effect at the moment? I mean, people on some of these trials that have been done, do they see anything? Uh, basically, look, there are some optimists, but there's been so much effort. Basically, I don't think it's controversial to say that there's a, there's a sense of pessimism and what else should we be doing. Mm. Uh, there, there are those who believe that if you get rid of amyloid very, very early, way before the symptoms begin, because the amyloid starts accumulating decades before the symptoms of Alzheimer's right. disease commence. So the thought is if, the, if you can detect it that early and stop it from accumulating, you may have a prevention. But that sort of clinical trial, logically, is going to take a very long time. And there are, the, there are clinical trials currently going on that are measured in five-year windows where we might see whether early treatment can buy some time. But there's so many people who've got Alzheimer's disease, it's a bit of a shame to give up on them. So there's plenty yeah. of room for, for new approaches and go back to trying to look at the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and what is, in fact, causing the loss of function in the brain. Yeah. A couple of things you said there I want to pick up on. So many people with Alzheimer's disease. How many people do have Alzheimer's disease in Australia, in the world? What percentage? Uh, Well, Alzheimer's disease affects approximately 5% of people over the age of 60 in terms of symptomatic. And that rises to as much as 50% of people in their mid-80s. So there is an exponential rise in the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, the clinical diagnosis. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. People who are losing their cognition but not yet called demented are a much larger fraction. So approximately 30% of people in their 60s have got amyloid in their brain. And we know that those people are vulnerable for Alzheimer's disease. They've got an increased risk. So there's a lot of uh, discussion now about mild cognitive impairments. So just cognitive loss without qualifying for dementia as being perhaps where we should start looking at uh, targeting treatment. Mm. And in terms of the timeframes, just before we're about to go to a break, but before we do that, the timeframes, decades with the amyloid, but what period do you see the decline and how are they different? Um, Yeah, the amyloid uh, accumulates silently with no symptoms at all. It's very hard to detect in terms of any impact on the function of the brain until the disease begins to occur. And that's a window of about five to seven years before a diagnosis of dementia is made. Once you're demented, you are very ill. But in the seven years prior to dementia, on average, the the, uh, erosion of the performance of the brain occurs. So it creeps up very Mm. slowly. Um, And it the amyloid may be there but the other features of the Alzheimer's disease down the microscope start to appear such as the tangles spreading throughout the brain. But if that seven years, if you present symptomatically you're well within that seven year window at that point. That's a pretty frightening number to know that your point of complete dementia is less than seven years away. Yes, and that's an average number. Some people will right. come down with, within a year or two. Others, it might be 10 years or more before they actually come down with the diagnosis. On average, about seven years. But yes, once you start getting symptoms in your 60s, it's, uh, it's serious. And we wish that we had something we could do to intervene. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get to that in just a moment. 
Folks, you are listening to Triple R. It's, uh, if you haven't worked this out yet, Triple R is a not-for-profit independent community broadcasting service, which is why Ashley and I are being paid so much to be here today. Um, the station is heavily reliant on our listeners' support, and every year we have a big radiothon around August, but we also have this April amnesty. So if you're in that state at the moment where you haven't subscribed and you'd like to subscribe and support the station, you can do it. Now, April amnesty actually finishes tomorrow, because tomorrow is the 30th of April. Um, there's a huge number of great prizes you can win for subscribing, including a bike, furniture, holidays to Tasmania. Tasmania. That's actually. a beautiful That's place. A place. Um, dinners, meals around town and lots more. Um, so if you want to head to the Triple R website, which is rrr.org.au, you can subscribe and help support this great station that some of us have been part of the furniture of for many, many years. We're going to take a break now for some music and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk about Ashley's approach uh, to Alzheimer's, which is completely different to what's been done by everyone else for the last three decades. Thanks for listening to Triple R. We'll be back in a moment. Three. Triple Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. We are partway through our interview today with Professor Ashley Bush. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease for this special production we're doing for April Amnesty in front of our live performance space audience who are... I can see them, bright lights, but we can just see them, can't we, Ashley? Yeah. Now, um, we've talked about the traditional view of Alzheimer's and the approach using, uh, well, a variety of techniques, but having a look at these amyloid plaques. Why... Are you not following that, actually? What's, what's your bugbear with the amyloid stuff? Well, I, I think uh, watching $5 billion being spent on clinical trials uh, and fail uh, sort of set a, a shot across the bow of the whole field. It, mm. In my case, I've been looking at other things for, for many years anyway because it's a complex disease. And uh, more than two decades ago, I had been involved in research that, that showed that there is a disturbance of metal metabolism in the brain in Alzheimer's disease, which has never attracted a great deal of attention. But now with the failure of other ideas and more oxygen being given to novel theories is, is, creating, is getting more gravity and uh, is being brushed off and we're looking at this very seriously right now. now. Let's just talk about metals for a moment because it's not something we always think about in terms of what's in our body. I mean, what, what's the need for us to have metals in the body in general? Uh, well, this will be very interesting for a physicist <laughs> because not many people realize that life depends upon metals and the evolution of life on Earth commenced what, two or three billion years ago with the emergence of iron and transition metals into the Earth's crust. And what's really interesting is that metals are very rare. So the most common elements in the universe are hydrogen and helium, and then you go down the periodic table and their abundance drops off until you reach metals like iron, which are very rare, and going further on, these sort of metals only appear after a supernova. Mm. So the, the metals like zinc and copper that are on, on the planet are there as a consequence of having been swept up by the debris of some exploding star way back when. And here we are thinking that we're so unique, but actually our existence depends upon very, very small concentrations of these chemicals. And iron probably is the predominant one in terms of all life on Earth, in terms of what, what is needed to exist and, and to reproduce and replicate. So organisms are hungry for iron. 
And in terms of the development of sophisticated organs like the brain, which is the most sophisticated organ that any organism possesses, its requirement for iron is ferocious and it uses it for energy metabolism and all kinds of feats. And if it doesn't have enough iron, it doesn't develop properly. And so in childhood, there's a tremendous drive to recruit iron, whether you're human or whether you are a mammal or whether you are a worm. All these organisms have got this thirst for iron. Microorganisms uh, have got a strong hunger for iron and they compete amongst themselves for the iron that's available in the host organism that they're invading. So all of this has been kind of understood but unappreciated in the Alzheimer world. And we had been tinkering around with observations that the Alzheimer proteins, the ones that mutations of which cause Alzheimer's disease, that they happen to regulate iron in the brain. And for the longest time, this was considered a coincidence until we, in, in this era where it's understood that amyloid is not necessarily the cause of Alzheimer's disease, that we began to think that the mutations that cause the aggressive form of Alzheimer's disease are actually causing their damage because they disturb the regulation of iron in the brain. As a complete revision of what is thought to be the role of these proteins in the disease, and at the same time, it suggests that the amyloid is, as it were, a signature of this damage, but not the cause itself. In the same way as spots on the skin is a signature of measles, but not the cause of the disease. So, so in terms of this iron, is it just iron? In terms of metals that are... The predominantly iron, but also the zinc and copper as well, but predominantly iron. And we see the effects on the body. You hear of people, especially after people have had children and so forth, the effects of low or even, the, interestingly, the effects of low iron and high iron levels in the blood. The symptoms are often very similar, actually. You know, lethargy, a whole lot of different issues that are very problematic. And we see that. Is, are we in that sort of same range, or is this really high levels of iron that are being built up progressively? Um, no, it's not very high. It's just a steady increase with ageing. The... Um there is a normal requirement for iron and you need to not be deficient in youth and during reproductive life. Hmm. But everything changes after midlife. So once you've done your reproduction and start heading into the golden years, you don't need as much iron. You don't need to eat as much iron. But the brain doesn't know this. Like any organ that's a product of evolution, it's geared up for maximum performance during reproduction and does what it needs to do in order to reproduce. But after reproduction's over, the problem with the brain's iron harvesting system is that it remains as efficient as it was when you were a child and uh, a young adult. Mm. So it summons iron into itself and it doesn't need the iron, so it stores it away. And so the iron levels in the brain rise steadily with aging. And there is this background elevation of iron in the brain that occurs in everyone. It's normal in a sense, but what we think happens is that this burden of iron increases so that some of it spills out into the wrong cellular compartments in the brain and begins to set up reactions that very strongly resemble ordinary rusting. Because the other thing the brain has got a lot of is oxygen. Right. It summons 20% of the metabolic requirement of the body. So it's got this high level of oxygen, it's got high levels of iron that increase with age, and you put the thing together and you will get rust. And indeed, this is what we see in the brain in, in normal aging, which becomes very much exaggerated in Alzheimer's disease. So I, I often like to think of the, you, know, you mentioned evolution, I like to think of things in those terms. 
we, we're never going to adapt to this. I mean, we're supposed to be dead by the time we're 40. We're bred, we've passed on our genes. Any adaptations that we found that were beneficial at that point have been passed on. And the fact that we, we just happen now, and we never used to 500 years ago, live beyond the age of 40, is not good in the sense that we're not evolving at that point. We're not passing on advantages. So is, is this something that you see in all species or is it, is it limited to us? You mentioned worms before. How do they go? Yeah, well, this is certainly the fun part of the argument is that we have now looked at so many different life forms and it's universal as far as we can see. It happens in every form of life. Uh, my colleague Gavin McCall uh, in, in our group at the uh, Melbourne Dementia R Research Centre studies worms as one of the classic models of ageing. And worms are a lot of fun to, to study because apart from the fact that they're cheap and they, they <laughs> eat bacteria, which is not particularly expensive to provide, um, they, they live for a very stylized uh, lifespan. So they, their median lifespan is 10 days and they're all dead by 20. And so you can look at populations of worms, hundreds and hundreds of worms and study their lifespan. You can manipulate their genetics. All of their genetics is known. You can do tons of experiments with them and see what happens to their lifespan. Now, it's a very interesting thing to think about. And I didn't used to think about it when I was studying medicine, but why do worms die at all? If you give them everything that they need and make them really comfortable, should, isn't it possible to keep them going forever? Why do they die? And this has been one of the most useful tools in terms of ordinary aging research. And we see a connection with Alzheimer's disease because among the things that they do is before they die, they accumulate iron in their bodies. And we have now established that iron kills them. So their lifespan is limited by this elevation of iron, reaches a certain point where they basically rust to the point that their cells explode and then they die. And we can extend their lifespan by preventing that elevation of iron through a number of means, but one of them is with pharmacology. So this is the basis of drug making. Now, if we could translate that into a higher organism, let's say a mouse or ultimately a human, we may have some means of preserving the function of tissue where iron elevation is a feature of ageing, just like it is of these worms. Hmm. So when you talk about extending the life of, of a worm, I'm particularly interested in this if you, you know, do something to extend my life. What are we talking about? We're we talking about like 10%, 20%. What do we mean in terms Double. of extension? Double. Mm -hmm. and, and what eventually kills, you know, it comes back to that point, like why do they eventually die? Yeah, well, we're, we're tackling that as well. And this is, this is the research that we've got ongoing right now. Um, when we double the lifespan of the worm with this sort of intervention, towards the end of its life, it still has this elevation of iron. So somehow there is a system in it that can even surmount that. But we're seeing whether we can tackle this. The, the best fun about these worms, and uh, this, is, this is work which we've presented a bit on, but it hasn't been published yet, so it hasn't done peer review, but it's still incredibly no, no exciting. One's, no one's listening. Okay. Yeah. But uh, Gavin McCall and uh, Nicole Jenkins have done a fantastic job on this. The, these worms don't just have an extended lifespan because of the type of caloric restriction effect where the worm becomes slow and it, it lives forever, but it's dull and it's not really moving very much. These worms are robust, they're healthy, they're skinny, they're muscular, they look, they're in great shape. So you can actually see the quality of the life that's in these worms and see how it has been enhanced by preventing it from accumulating the iron. Ultimately, will it die? Well, I mean, something's got to kill. There are other ways of dying, but to get a doubling of the lifespan in, in a simple organism with, with such an intervention, I think is, an, is a, a great accomplishment. So we're very excited about this and very excited because we can see how this could generalize to other biology. Mm. And in fact, there are 
any organism we've looked at, flies, mice, humans, primates, they all have this elevation of iron. And in humans, you can image it. And that is a big part of what we do. We use yeah. MRI technology to quantify the elevation of iron that occurs during natural aging and see what role it plays in Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. So that's where I wanted to come back to. So you're watching the iron build up in the brain in a person who has Alzheimer's. Now, as you said, the amyloid happens over decades. What's the time frame of the iron? How, how cleanly can you pick it up? Uh, how does it track with symptoms? What does all this look like? The elevation of iron probably occurs later towards the, um, the onset of the symptoms. So to make this clearer, iron will elevate just as a consequence of aging. But in Alzheimer's disease, another event occurs where there is a synergy between the elevation of the iron and the accumulation of amyloid or the other pathology. You can live, according to our studies, and this is stuff we have published, so you can live with a head full of amyloid and be unaffected by symptoms, provided the iron levels within your brain are below a certain limit. But the people who have got the higher levels of iron are the ones who capitulate into loss of function and deteriorate, and they get atrophy, and their brain is very, becomes very damaged. So there's something about the combination of the iron with the other pathology, the amyloid and the tangles, which sets up uh, very adverse chemistry in the brain, which leads to damage. Hmm. And if, if I presented with you in, say, year two, of this period and you measured the level of iron would you be able to then project where i would be how you mentioned before that different people fall into the point to the point of dementia at different rates would you be able to tell me you know how long i've got we we can do that without with the, the scans still aren't generally available, uh, but, but in populations that we've looked at, cohorts of people who have enrolled in studies over, uh, for example, the ABLE study, which uh, is 1,112 people who've been studied at 18-month intervals since 2006, we can see that the people who have got amyloid mm. with the higher 50% of iron in their brains, as we follow them over time, they're the ones who have got a markedly accelerated onset of disease within two years. Years. If they're in our in that quadrant, they they'll actually become demented. So it's the basis of a test, and we're doing more clinical studies right now to to sharpen this up and be able to deploy it in the clinic. So one day we imagine it'll go like this: like in midlife, you go you have your colonoscopy or you have your your, your prostate felt, and you will also have an amyloid scan. And if the amyloid is positive, then you'll have another scan for the iron. And if the iron is positive, you'll start treatment to prevent Alzheimer's disease. But just mm -hmm. amyloid alone is not enough. Yeah. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to 3RRR. This is a special April Amnesty edition of Einstein at GoGo. And we're talking to Professor Ashley Bush today about Alzheimer's. If you haven't subscribed to RRR, it's a good time to do it. You can do it via our website, which is rrr.org.au. So hang around. We'll be back with the final part of this interview in just a few minutes. 3RRR. You are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. We're in the third part of our interview with Professor Ashley Bush talking about Alzheimer's disease. Ashley, I was wandering around our studio audience uh, today just you know, asking a few questions about how bored they were, and thankfully not very. But the thing that came up a couple of times was 
why don't they just eat less iron? Like, or do people with iron deficiencies have the same issues? I mean, how does that play out in this space? Yeah, we studied that very carefully. Uh, the brain has got the ability to summon iron to itself even when you, the rest of your body is deficient. Mm. And so it is very hard to control the entry of iron into the brain on the, with just diet alone or even with things like blood donation. There are some disorders of iron accumulation in the periphery, like hemochromatosis, where you do get large concentrations of iron building up in the liver and in heart muscle and other tissues, but almost none of that enters the brain. The brain has got its own special relationship with dietary iron. It, it summons what it wants and it doesn't stop summoning it. If you feed the, the organism more iron, yes, in youth, much of that iron can enter into the brain. But later in life, it's just kind of ignored and the brain will take its, its standard dose every day. Mm. So it's not much of a connection with diet in later life. Mm. And when you've got someone who is well within that seven-year period of uh, dementia you know, tracking, can you just remove the iron at that point? I mean, you, you talked about drugs for the amyloid where you could just flush it out, basically. And what happens if you just flush the iron out at that point? Forgetting the uptake part, just the, I've got heaps of it in there, I'm starting to lose my cognitive function, get the iron out of me and fix me up. Yeah, the only way of doing that is with um, uh, chemistry and with a drug. There is a drug uh, which we have started a clinical trial on called deferoprone. And this is a drug which is used in children who have got mutations of hemoglobin and they, uh, their red cells are destroyed by the mutation. So they become anemic and they need frequent blood transfusions. But every time you do a blood transfusion, you get a big load of iron. So these kids get what's called secondary hemochromatosis. They get an iron accumulation as a consequence of frequent blood transfusion. And the iron, as I said, can damage the liver, it can damage the heart. And so to prevent this from happening, the children are treated with a class of compound called iron chelators. These are chemicals which can bind iron and take it out of the body. And over the last several decades, treatment of conditions of mutations of hemoglobin with these iron chelators have been reasonably successful and have bought a lot of time for these children who would otherwise die in childhood as a consequence of this. The problem is that the, those type of iron chelators don't cross the blood-brain barrier uh, very well, if at all, except for the, the latest one that has been used in this capacity, which is deferoprone. And this was a drug which appeared about 20 years ago, and uh, it wasn't at the time recognized that it could cross the blood-brain barrier and enter into this privileged brain environment. But it was eventually discovered that that was the case. And in terms of uh, its use in neurology for brain disorders, there, have, there are not many brain disorders had, that had been recognized as being primarily caused by iron accumulation. But certainly over the last 10 years, the ones that have been described as caused by iron elevation, I'm talking about quite uncommon neurological syndromes, um, have been shown to respond to reduction of brain iron with deferoprone. Then a breakthrough happened in 2014. Uh, it had been recognized that Parkinson's disease is one of the disorders where you also get this mysterious elevation of iron in the affected tissue, and it resembles Alzheimer's disease in this regard. A group in France led by David Deveau uh, 
uh, did a clinical trial of deferoprone for the treatment of Parkinson's disease. It was a small study, but it was very successful. Over an 18-month period, they ameliorated the symptoms and they showed with scans and with samples of uh, cerebrospinal fluid, lumbar puncture, spinal tap fluid, that the iron levels in the brain were safely being lowered. And you didn't have to lower it much. 20-30% is enough. And they got a clinical response. So this drug is now in uh, phase three testing, that's big testing, uh, in Europe in a couple of different sites for Parkinson's disease. And that's where we chimed in and said, well, look, if this drug is available in Australia. It is only available for children, but we can, uh, we can try it for, for adults. And so we uh, successfully applied to the NHMRC for a, a, a grant for a clinical trial to, to test it out like it was tested in Parkinson's disease, but in Alzheimer's disease. Mm. And so just to be clear, though, I mean, when you say the drug is available, that means it's been tested and is safe for humans to, to take for, for a completely different reason. But you don't have to go through that whole rigmarole of those stages of trials to prove its safety at this point. It's just available. That's right. It's called repurposing. Mm. And now... In terms of, let's talk about the trial because this is interesting because I, I suspect anyone who either has a family member or themselves are in this stage of Alzheimer's development, uh, the, the constant, you know, chatter that you get through the media of cures is frankly, you know, can be insulting. Um, it can be hurtful. And usually, and in many cases, you know, this is being done by scientists because they're desperate for support and funding and it's, it's really the only way to get that support is to get their, their project work highlighted. In, in terms of what you're doing and this clinical trial, I mean, can you sketch out what it, what it actually looks like and means for people who are you know, entering into this phase right now? Well, um, yeah, we're very cautious to use words like cure mm. and breakthrough and so forth, but um, there are... And, and the press loves it, and it is a, it is a problem. Uh, in this case, this is a, uh, a drug approach which promises to be to test whether or not it's disease modifying. Now, what does that mean? Now, there are symptomatic treatments for Alzheimer's disease, so you can buy a bit of time with things that are effectively stimulants, but they're the only class of drug available. To, to try to stop the disease with a chemical approach is going to require what's called a disease modifying drug, and our theory is that deferoprone could be such a drug. So we are, look, we are recruiting people who have got authentic Alzheimer's disease. We check them out to make sure that they're authentic. We can do amyloid brain scan to make sure that the amyloid is there. And then we do a number of neuropsychological tests to check the severity of the dementia or pre-dementia. We'll take patients who are coming down with the disease. They don't have to be already demented. And so we're looking for 171 volunteers. Two-thirds of the people will go onto the drug. One-third will be on a placebo and it's randomized we don't know who's getting what no one does but you've got a 66 percent chance of of having the drug and it's taken daily for a year and in mm. that period uh, you're checked on to see firstly most importantly is it safe and well tolerated and then can it slow down the rate of deterioration which we expect because we're very good at characterizing the rate of deterioration it's like looking at the glide path of a plane landing on a runway we know how fast it comes down so we check on that rate of deceleration in terms of performance and uh, we're hoping to either slow down the deterioration or stop it or 
potentially even improve it a little bit. That's not impossible in, in terms of what we're looking at. And we really don't, won't know the answer until we do it. We're completely mm. blinded, and it will take a couple of years to get the answers out of this. And is this one of those trials where if you see the effects are extraordinary, I mean, which could be the case, will you move that other 33% off the placebo onto the active drug. Is that one of those the adaptive trials where that's done? It's not an adaptive trial, but because we're repurposing a drug that's already available in Australia, although you have to be a child and, and right. you have to have the condition in order to be eligible to get this drug, which otherwise costs $2,500 a month, uh, if we have success in the outcome of this clinical trial, I think it would be a pretty quick sell to the government to say we should either ramp up more testing mm. or we should consider putting this uh, as available for Alzheimer's patients. Mm. So the, the movement towards it being available as a prescription should be relatively fast because it's already there. Mm. So, even, so people who are on the trial, if it is working for them, do, does, you know, do they end the 12 months and then they will have to get this drug to maintain the sort of point they're at? Uh, and that's a really good question. We don't know. Mm. You know, we don't know what happens. Like in terms of the theory, if we remove the excess iron from the brain, it's only going to come back very slowly. So it might be a little bit like a sheep dip where you get rid of the problem and it lasts for a while. Mm. So you know, we, we really won't know until we do these studies. Uh, this is the first study of its kind in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and if we're lucky, uh, there'll be a sustained benefit. That's theoretically possible. Mm. But it shouldn't be too long, if it is successful, it shouldn't be too long before we'd be able to mount another clinical trial or else consider whether or not this should be used as a prescription for Alzheimer's yeah. disease more routinely. So the call out is to people who would be available for the clinical trial then. How, how do people get involved? Well, we have uh, a number of uh, sites of information out there on the web. Um, one email that you can always write to is 3D, that's the name of the trial, as in three-dimensional, so the mm -hmm. number 3D, at flory, F-L-O-R-E-Y, dot E-D-U, dot A-U. That's probably the easiest way to have someone then get back to you and uh, check you out yep. for, for eligibility. Yep. Well, we'll share those links as well. Now, we did have a few questions from our audience as they came in, which I thought we just quickly touch on a couple before we finish up. Um, one was, of course, there was a lot of talk about positron beam topography work and so forth as a therapy, um, as, a, as a physics guy, I think that's really interesting. Um, but I'm not big on the idea of someone pointing a positron beam at my head. So has that shown any benefit at this point? It's not a therapy, it's a diagnostic. Oh, okay. It's a really right. good diagnostic yep. in terms of being able to detect amyloid. But the problem is that so many people have got amyloid and don't have symptoms. But we use this in order to screen people. If yep. they don't have amyloid in their brain, it's not Alzheimer's disease. By right. definition, it's a kind of pathological definition that we're using, but that's the disease we're trying to treat. Yeah. And there's a whole industry out there that tells you that if you play enough computer games and do crosswords, this won't happen. Is this total BS, Ashley? Some people think it's not likely to be true. Others believe in it very strongly. I think it's one of those debates in science where the jury is still out. I think it makes sense to any organ you exercise maintains its performance. Hence, if you continue to do physics, you'd still be able to do your calculations as fast as you used to. You keep coming back to that. <laughs> I don't feel guilty that I'm not doing that anymore. It gave me a headache. Um, the, the other thing is has there been, we, we hear a lot more about Alzheimer's today than we used to years ago. Has there been an increase in the number of people with Alzheimer's due to, you know, 
potentially chemical contamination that we're experiencing in our lives, or, or are we just better at detecting it? Um, all, all of the above there's evidence for. But most mm. importantly, people are now living to the age of risk because medicine's been successful right. in getting people to survive heart disease and cancer, the other big killers, they reach the age of risk for Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. That's the main reason why it's so common right now. Mm. However, there's quite a lot of interest in epidemiological studies that have shown that your, the proximity of where you live to sources of pollution, such as um, highways, uh, increases your risk for mm. Alzheimer's disease. And some very interesting work out of Boston shows that the brain actually has got the capacity to filter the blood in, in a way that you wouldn't like to know. So it can right. filter particles out of, the, out of the blood like the kidney, and these particles wind up in the in brain. The brain. Mm. Not great. Ashley, thanks so much for chatting to us today. It's been exceptional learning about Alzheimer's and we wish you the very best of luck, not just for you, but for the huge number of people that this affects. Um, it's been great having you on Triple R. Thanks so well, much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Einstein to Go Go Live. Yep. See? Proof that we have a live audience. Um, <laughs> you've been listening to Einstein and Go Go Live, folks, from the Triple R Performance Space. This has been the final event of the station's April Amnesty Live series, and of course, the best one, um, which has been running for the last month. Uh, a massive thank you today to Professor Ashley Bush and his team for helping us put this together. Also to the team of volunteers and support staff here at Triple R, of which there are many, many I hadn't met before that came in today, especially for this particular event. A big thank you to our technology partners, Avid and KV2, for the monitoring of the sound in the performance space, and thanks to, the Mount, to Mountain Goat, have also sponsored the station's April Amnesty Live series. Um, thank you all of the Triple R subscribers who came along today for turning up. We appreciate seeing you in the flesh. It's really important to those of us who are stuck in the studio every Sunday who never get to see those listening to the show. Um, annual subscriptions uh, to Triple R start at just $40. So if you're out there listening and you haven't subscribed and you'd like to financially support the station, it is essential that you do this to keep us broadcasting. We don't get big chunks of corporate cash, um, which is why Ashley and I can say whatever we want. Triple uh, R subscribers do fund the station and they own the station. We appreciate that. We now have to hand over to the team from Eat It. Um, Cam is no doubt in the other studio waiting. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go Go. We appreciate your support. I'm Dr. Shane. Until next time, remember science is everywhere and thanks for tuning, tuning in on Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.